It is good to cast our minds and our affections upon this risen Christ who's, as Tom said, not only our Redeemer, but the one who faithfully rules over his church this morning. And how good it is to know that we come under his perfect grace and under his perfect headship and to know even further that he desires to speak to us this morning, this great and exalted King. So would you with me turn in your copy of God's word this morning to Exodus chapter 15. Continuing to make our way through the book of Exodus, we'll move into chapter 16 and dip our toe into 17 this morning, considering these three consecutive narratives. Exodus 15, we'll begin reading in verse 22 this morning. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, they named it Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there. By the water. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day... When they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, 
the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, and the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, each, of, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take, take an omer according to the number of persons that are in, you have in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses said, as Moses commanded them. And they, it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place, and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate manna 40 years till they came to the habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And omer is the tenth of a part of an ephah. Chapter 17, 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. 
And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? As we've heard God's word, let's pray and let's ask that by his spirit he would help us to not only hear with our ears, but to believe it and receive it by faith. Father, we look to you this morning confident that your word is clear, it is sufficient, it is profitable, and it's powerful. And we are confident that because of your gracious care of us, the ministry of your own spirit, that, Father, your word will accomplish your purposes among us this morning. But we plead and we ask that you'd be faithful to your promise to help us as your people to receive your word as it is, the very word of God, that we might receive it with hearts of meekness, that it would grow up and bear fruit. And Father, that you would cause us this morning to see and to hear your glory, to know something more of who you are. And Father, we pray that you would be well pleased, even in weakness, to exalt yourself, that we might know and believe and rest in all that you are and that you've revealed yourself to us, we pray. Amen. If you've read the book of Hebrews, you know that it begins with a commanding announcement that God has spoken. What is equally astounding is that he has spoken in such a way that we can understand and that we can respond. The emphasis on hearing and responding to God's word, it's very important because it reminds us that when we read our Bibles, just like we did this morning, we're not merely reading to glean information or facts or little doctrinal tidbits that we can put in our pockets and walk away with. When we read our Bibles, ultimately, we are being exposed to God, to the God who is. And this is certainly the case as we read through the book of Exodus. It's not merely a timeline of events scattered with a few miraculous moments, a few speeches, and then a glory descending. It's much more than a timeline of history. We are reading Revelation. We are reading God's revelation to us so that we might know something of who this God is. Well, we read that he certainly delivers his people out of bondage, as he did there in Egypt that he's going to give them his law, and that he's going to direct them and to guide them to build a place that he might dwell with them, that they might rest 
in his very presence. Well, even so, we could still ask after reading all of that, and we ought to ask, what kind of God is he? Who is this God? And this is a particularly relevant question as Israel has just spent 430 years in Egypt. They've just spent 430 years where their problem was not atheism. Their problem was polytheism. The question on their minds was not, is there a God? The natural question in that culture would be, which God is he? What is your God like? The narrative in Exodus is given so that we might know he is the Lord and that we might see his glory. That is, that we might see something of his worth, of his beauty, of his majesty and splendor. Not only does God reveal himself through what we could call direct revelation, the sort of blunt, unmistakable revelation, like where God speaks to Moses in a burning bush, or where God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes before him and speaks directly and says, this is who I am. God speaks not only directly, but he also speaks indirectly to us through this narrative. He speaks indirectly through the descriptions of what is given, through images, through patterns, through repetitions, through the various elements that make up the story where we are able to say, he is Yahweh. This is the Lord and this is his glory. Just think about it. We're learning something about the glory of his power as he commands all of nature with these 10 plagues. He didn't have to come and say that I am the God who controls the waters. We see that quite plainly. He also reveals himself as the God who gets glory in his justice as he drowns Pharaoh and his army for his resistance to his word. He didn't have to say that plainly. And matter of fact, in chapter or verse, he shows us and he speaks plainly. But what do we learn of the glory of God through the grumbling and disobedience of his people? Perhaps you have an idea of what God should do. Maybe as you read through this, you found your head shaking like these people. Maybe you have an idea of what you would expect a God to do. But what does this portion of Scripture actually reveal? What has God said? If we're really and personally going to know the God of Scripture, we must not only know something about his power and his justice, but also his grace. Look how this unfolds in the passage that's before us. First of all, we are told of their grumbling against the Lord. They're grumbling against the Lord. The, pattern of, the portion of Scripture that's before us is structured to include three narratives. The waters at Marah that were bitter, the bread from heaven, and the third narrative, the water that was provided from the rock. And did you notice that in each of these three narratives, we're told of mumbling, grumbling, and complaining? 
Look back at verse 24 of chapter 15 when they're there at the bitter waters. Exodus 15 verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Look at chapter 16 verse 2. They journey on from there. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then look at the third narrative. Chapter 17, verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, what makes this grumbling even more shocking is the relative proximity that it is to their firsthand experience of God's power being displayed in his mighty provision for his people. In their minds, could they not recall so freshly that God splits the sea? Could they not recall only days before about how God judges even the mightiest kings? How God preserves his people? And yet, having experienced all of that, somehow the lack of food and water pushes them over the edge and say, we're going to die. Now, the ultimate offense of this sort of grumbling is Not that they're just letting off a little bit of steam as they're journeying together, venting to one another about unfavorable circumstances. No, the pinnacle of their offense, as Moses points out, is that their grumbling is not against Moses. It's not against the circumstances. It is ultimately against Yahweh. Remember, it's the Lord who's leading them each step of the way. Do you remember that cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night? Moses and Aaron, whom he has deputized to lead them. So there's no question in their mind, like, maybe we made a left, we should have made a right. It's pretty obvious that where they are going, they are going because the Lord has led them there. Then what that means is that he led them to Mara. He led them into the wilderness. He led them to Rephidim. So what we might say is that they knew certain things intellectually. We're following Yahweh. But that knowledge did not transfer into action. Therefore, we must trust him. Have you noticed this sort of inconsistency within your own life? Where you can know certain things, doctrinal truths, And yet, it doesn't transfer into action all the time. You gladly confess God's sovereign rule over all of creation. You love, maybe it's even underlined in your Bible. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. 
Somehow we are a people who are able to affirm biblical doctrine that God is in perfect control over all things, but functionally we behave that there are certain circumstances and life events that are somehow detached from this rule. And they just exist out here in the realm of life. In the moment, things like transmissions going out, interest rates going up or coming down with some sort of sickness, we can view those as just raw circumstance that exists out here. And so then we whine and we grumble and we complain. And whether we admit it or not, the root of our dissatisfaction and complaining is against no one else but God. And that's exactly what Moses and Aaron tell the people here. And this is the real issue, friends. This is the underlying issue. The real issue is one of contentment. This is what I want, but this is what I have. And I grumble. The Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs gave a lot of attention to this idea of contentment. He wrote about it, thought well about it. Uh, It's been published and preserved, and you can pick up a paperback copy for about $15. If you want to read more about it, it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Apparently, contentment is not just a Western American modern-day problem. It kind of plagues all of God's people. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Did you catch the emphasis in his definition? Freely submitting to and delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal. That statement right there attacks the very heart and pierces the heart through of our grumbling. It gets right to the core center of why I grumble, and it deals with it head on. Remembering and resting in the providence of God is the ultimate correction against our grumbling. Why? Well, what do we mean by providence? Well, our confession, the Second London Confession, chapter 5, the first paragraph helpfully summarizes what the Bible teaches concerning God's providence. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest, even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. But how does that doctrinal truth guard us against complaining, against murmuring? Well, a couple of ways. One, when we just consider the universal reach of God's providence. Remember we talked about how sometimes we think this particular circumstance is somehow not falling under the category? By just meditating on his providence, it expands my mind to consider the universal reach of His providence. God rules all things by his infinite power and wisdom from the greatest to the least. And so I just give myself to meditate on that astounding fact. The gases and atoms 
in the furthest galaxy down to the crumbs under my kitchen table fall under his care. There's not a hair from our heads or a sparrow in the sky that falls apart from his providential care. To think about the universality of his providence, it removes this category of this circumstance falling outside of his hand. I'm able to actually sing with honesty whatever my God ordains is right. I can sing that truthfully because I first begun to think that of the universality of his care. And secondly, I've also begun thinking about the great comfort that that is for God's people. As his children, we have the great assurance in knowing that his providential rule extends to us as an expression of his wisdom, righteousness, goodness, and grace. Whatever my God ordains is right. As God's child, I embrace that and I can say, because he is my father, I can say with all confidence, this is good. Even if he disciplines me, even if he shows me the corruption of my heart, he does so for my good. God's people can say with all confidence that whatever befalls me is by his holy appointment. It's for his glory and it's for my good. So I meditate on this doctrine of providence and I say, this grumbling has no place. Grumbling and complaining has no place in the life of God's people. And yet, here it is in plain sight. Hold on to that for a second because we're going to come back to this. Because what this portion reveals to us is not only the grumbling that is against the Lord, we also see quite plainly, secondly, there is great disobedience unto the Lord. Grumbling against the Lord and disobedience unto the Lord. Why do I say that? Because I'm seeing another repeated and prominent theme in this section, a repetition that runs through all three narratives, and the emphasis is upon God commanding and the expectation that his people will respond by listening. This word commandment or instruction, it moves throughout these narratives, weaving them together, showing us the emphasis that is upon this God commands, and he expects his people to listen. We're told in chapter 16, look back in verse 4, that the entire bread from heaven incident, it's given to test his people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and all the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. What does this mean? Well, it means that God is not merely filling their stomachs, but he's exposing their hearts. This is a rule for testing. And what was this test? Well, at the root of it, you could say it has something to do with trust. It has something to do with confidence in God's word. Will they trust his word to them or not? Would they see it as good, as authoritative, and to be obeyed. Okay, well, what did God's word say to them here? 
okay, days one to five, only gather, excuse me, days one to six, only gather for that day. Day one, two, three, four, and five, do you trust that he'll provide for you tomorrow? Day two, don't worry about day three. Just take for today. Day six, gather twice as much so that you can rest on day seven. Do you trust that the excess of day six will sustain you and it won't rot like the other days? So this whole arrangement, it provides this weekly opportunity for Israel to be tested by God and to learn something of God's provision for them. Each day, they would have to trust that God's going to do this again tomorrow. Only take for today? Yeah, only take for today. What if we don't eat tomorrow? Take for today. Day six, take for two days. But what if it's going to rot? Just take for two days. Every week, repeated patterns. God's word. Will you trust him? And every week, they would see how God provided in a way that, if we're honest, runs so contrary to their normal sense of how we should gather and store food. Right? There's a sale on this. We need this. Well, we'll put it in the cupboard, and we'll have some extra in reserves. There's a big harvest. We should harvest all of this. It runs contrary to so much earthly wisdom, and yet God said, here's how we're going to do this. Day by day. So in the end, really, the emphasis is not upon the bread. It's upon the word that's been given to them. The bread is just simply the means to reveal to them that their trust in God's word and their dependence upon him is right. And is this not exactly what Moses told them later in Deuteronomy? when we fast forward and they've made their way through the wilderness and they're about to cross over to the Jordan and Moses gathers the team and said, let's review. What have we learned? Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's not about the bread, guys. It's about my word, and do you trust it? Do you see it as good? And the proof of your trust and your belief that it is good is seen in your obedience. But can you hear the objection if you're there, wandering in the wilderness? I hear you. But for me, honestly, this is just me. I would feel a little more at ease if we had, I don't know, two weeks worth of bread. Or if I could just look in my tent and see a nice pile of 30 days worth of bread, I would trust you. Believe me, I'll give you all the glory for that 30-day stockpile. The Lord did this. I'm trusting him. Couldn't we just do that? Perhaps. But what if... God created us by his own design to actually know a greater sense of contentment that comes not from looking at a stockpile of bread, but by looking to him who gives the bread. What if he actually knew by design that our good and his glory is worked out in our dependence, not our abundance? that through that dependence, we're forced to actually look to him to be the one that he promises to be. 
God was intentionally placing them in a position of dependence that they would be reminded each morning of his ability and his desire to sustain them. Think about that. It's not God being stingy, just doling out a tic-tac's worth of manna. He's saying, I want you to know every day, because you might forget, that I am able and willing to sustain you. So guess what? When you wake up, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to provide for you. Okay, so how did they do? How did they do with this pattern of commandment and listening? Well, look at 16. Look at verse 16. Chapter 16, verse 16. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And then look at verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning and bread, it bred worms and stink. And Moses was angry with them. Or later, look at verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. Good. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow's a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that's left over lay aside to be kept until morning. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? The test was pretty simple. God's instruction fairly clear. His faithfulness, it's been plainly seen up until this point, and yet the people were disobedient to the Lord. Okay, let's pause. What do we have thus far in the triad of narratives here before us? We have a people who we know have most certainly been redeemed by the outstretched hand of God. He brought them out with a strong hand. A people who have seen firsthand the glory of the Lord in his power and his justice, defending them and defeating all of their enemies. And yet they respond with grumbling and disobedience. Now, Given what we know so far, it wouldn't really be surprising at all to read that God sent fire down from heaven and consumed just the whole lot of them right there. But this is where the plot twists. This is where we get the unexpected surprise. Because it's not just grumbling against the Lord and disobedience unto the Lord The other primary emphasis in this section is God's gracious provision. Gracious provision from the Lord. This does not resolve as we might expect. Because God uses their grumbling and their disobedience as an occasion not to punish them, but to teach them something about himself. What do we learn about Yahweh in these three encounters? Let's just quickly look back at each one and connect some of the dots of what's been given to us here. Look back at the waters of Marah. Remember how water plays a significant role in this Exodus story. It's a place of judgment. It's also a place of salvation. Moses was spared from the waters of the Nile. Many Hebrew boys were not. Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea. 
Israel was saved through that, those same waters. And here we have another example of God's control over the chaos of that which is water. This time it's bad water. It's water that's bitter. It's water that they cannot drink. It's water that's been contaminated and therefore does not satisfy, which would actually poison them. Water that could have brought death becomes a source of life. That's what happens at Mara. Now think about what's actually happened so far. At the Nile, good water is turned bad in the form of a curse. And here at Mara, bad water is turned good in the form of a blessing. Yahweh is not only mighty in judgment, he is gracious and merciful. For they grumbled and complained, and yet God turned bitter water sweet. He did not give them what they deserved, but he provided them out of his kindness and out of his mercy. And in case we aren't catching it, it's amplified all the more when you just keep reading, because after the whole complaining and bitterness and the water turns sweet, they move on, and where do they go? Where's the next stop? Oh, it's the land of 12 pools and 70 palm trees. It wasn't like they got through that, and then they had you know, massive amounts of years of nothing. God brings them to a place of 12 and 70, a place of completion, a place of fullness. Here's a pool for one tribe of the each of you, and here's plenty of shade. God amplifies his gracious provision in light of their grumbling by giving them abundance. Complaining is met with grace. Murmuring is met with blessing. Now, at this point, we should be asking, what kind of God is this? Who is he? Well, it doesn't stop there because in the bread from heaven. The next unexpected plot twist is here. It's in the second story as God provides for his people. Remember, the bread from heaven comes as a response to the ungrateful complaining of God's people. Don't detach that from the context. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 16. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Don't miss that. Would that God had cursed us rather than redeemed us. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. And in response to their grumbling for the lack of bread, wishing they were judged by the Lord in Exodus instead of spared, we read in verse 6, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling. Those two phrases, you shall know that he's the Lord, you shall see his glory. If you've been tracking through Exodus, those should sound familiar to you. This isn't the first time they've shown up in this narrative. In fact, they're repeated quite often. The context where you shall know that I am the Lord, you shall see my glory, it's most prominently given to us in the ten plagues. It's spoken to Pharaoh. It's spoken to Egypt. It's spoken that through these mighty acts of judgment, you shall know that I am the Lord and you shall see my glory. 
So if you've heard those words before and you've seen those plagues and you know that you've been grumbling and Moses comes and says, God's heard, you're grumbling. And you're going to know that he's the Lord. And you're going to see his glory. What are you immediately thinking? Those words have a context. Historically, those are very bad words. Those are all the marks of very bad news. And God tells disobedient people through Moses, tonight you're going to know the Lord is among you. And when you wake up, you're going to see his glory. How would that afternoon have gone for you? You eat a nice meal of quail, but then you're still thinking, what's happening in the morning? What is this? God reveals his glory. You would expect that these phrases of knowing the Lord and seeing his glory in response to their grumbling and disobedience will mean certain judgment for them, but instead, God graciously provides for them. God reveals his glory through the gracious provision of meat and bread. They know something more of this God through his steadfast love and mercy as he gives them a dinner of quail and a daily supply of bread. He hears their complaints and he meets it with gracious provision that you may know I am the Lord, that you may see my glory. Who is this God? Who is like this God? But it doesn't end there. Because it's not only the Bitter waters turn sweet. It's not only the bread for grumblers. It's also water from a rock. Israel travels onward again. Again, as you would expect in a wilderness desert, they come to a place where there is no water. But surely this time we know what to do. But in jaw-dropping irony, the people of God choose to grumble, actually putting God to the test They say, is this Yahweh among us or not? If he is, why are we thirsty? And so in response to their grumbling and their quarreling and their even testing the Lord, doubting his presence among them, God gives more instruction. Look at 17, verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now again, these are ominous words. If you just stopped right here and you heard that God had directed Moses to take that staff that had struck the Nile and to pass before the people and you know out of your mouth just moments ago you said, is Yahweh among us or not? That same staff that cursed the Nile now brings blessing and provision. The people who should have been struck were spared. The staff of Moses strikes the rock, providing them with the water that they need. Grumbling and high-handed presumption is met with gracious provision. Again, 
and we say, who is like the Lord our God? Who compares to him? That we may know that he is the Lord and see something of his glory, that he responds to grumbling and disobedience with grace? Does this sound scandalous to you? Does this ring as somewhat concerning to you? In that you maybe are even offended that the grumbling complainers get grace and not judgment? And what's the precedent we're setting here? I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with this. Well, it should sound outrageous. I'll give you that, because that is exactly what grace is. Lest we forget that grace is undeserved favor given by an unobligated giver. And you let that sink in, and it better sound outrageous. It better sound unnatural. It better sound like grace. The outrageous announcement of good news of the gospel is that God sees the grumbling and the disobedience of his people and meets them not with judgment, but with mercy. Grace is undeserved favor given by an unobligated giver, and the shocking nature of God's grace is seen and experienced most clearly against the backdrop of the offense of our sin. So these three narratives in Exodus are woven together so that we too might see something of the glory of the Lord and know that it is the Lord who brings his people out of bondage. Now, ironically, it is actually the shocking experience of grace that transforms grumblers into thankful people and disobedient complainers into obedient worshipers. It is grace that changes Yes, we do see something of God's glory in his justice. There's, there's no denying that. And we see something of his glory in his power over all creation. But the manifold splendor of his glory is revealed in his gracious dealings with his people. Now, you realize that grumbling and disobedience did not end here. It didn't even end with Israel's wilderness journeys. It continues on, shows up in the kingdom of David, shows up as Israel and Judah are taken captive, shows up in the life of Christ's own disciples, shows up in the early church. It's probably even shown up in our lives, even this past week perhaps this morning. And in the midst of our own grumbling and disobedience, how has God revealed himself to us? What has he done so that we might know that he is the Lord and that we might stand in awe of his glory? Well, he has given to us bread from heaven and living water that we might not thirst. See, God is so good in giving us the images and pictures that display the ultimate grandeur of what he's given to us in his son. 
Is this not the very narrative that Jesus referred to in John 6? When Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the gracious response to sinful and grumbling people. He gives us not what we deserve, but graciously provides what his people most certainly need. Friend, do you know this God? Not the God of your imagination. Not the God that you've cobbled together from a few various sources. The God of your parents that you perceive him to be. Do you know the God who has spoken and revealed himself in his word and most clearly in his son? That's the God who speaks. That's the God who reveals himself. And he reveals himself to be one who's gracious towards grumbling, disobedient people in the provision of his son. Christ speaks to us through his word this morning because the Father delights to give grace to sinners. He's well pleased to have mercy on disobedient people. And so we hear that, and our then natural responsibility is to respond. What will you do with that news? That he promises to be gracious to grumbling, disobedient people. The only right response to that news is to confess, forsake sin by accepting, receiving, and resting in Christ. You receive the bread from heaven. Father, this is your provision for my sin? Yes, my son given for you. Of all the grumbling, of all the disobedience, of all the sin, of all the complaining, yes, whosoever, whosoever would believe God's gracious provision for sinners. God has spoken. And in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. That's why we have a more sure, more credible, in the sense of a more foundational, clear, trustworthy testimony that's been given to us. So may the Lord continue to give us ears to hear so that we might rightly respond and rest in this Christ. Father, we thank you for your gracious provision for us in Christ. Lord, we gladly and most freely confess that we are not worthy of what you've given, that we haven't done one thing to merit the provision that you've made, but Father, we hear and we receive what you have done in your Son and whom it is that you've given him for. And Father, out of hearts of humility, and hearts of rejoicing, we respond gladly. Lord, help us to continue to see your hand over all things and to see your gracious provision in every detail of our lives. Continue to conform us to the image of your Son that you might receive the glory that you rightly deserve, that you might continue to make your name known on this earth until you return, we pray. Amen.